This is the Only in Miami show, sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Islands. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. I've got two incredible guests here for you. I would like to welcome Jared W. Alexander. Jared, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me, Grant. I appreciate it. So Jared is an author. He's going to be appearing at the Miami Book Fair for his new book, Volunteers, uh, Volunteers, the uh, Growing Up in the Forever Wars. And I just want to say that this is such a, a timely topic. I mean, it's something that has been uh, undercovered. Uh, as a, a matter of, of news, um, something that has uh, sadly fallen off of the news radar for many years until uh, just recently when uh, President Biden completed the, the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. And, and I think that this is a topic that it's long overdue that we as a, a country have a discussion about the impact of these uh, forever wars. So, uh, Jared, uh, thank you for joining me. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, about your background as a writer, as your background as a, a, a veteran of the armed services who served overseas in combat, and and, and tell them a little. And let's just start with that, just a little bit about your background and yourself. Sure, um, I, I enlisted in the Marine Corps in '98. Um, I, I grew up around the military. My parents were in the Air Force, uh, and and I had some. It's generationally goes back to the Army and, and as far back as the Revolution as I can track it. Um, and so a little bit in the British Army, but um, I have been interested in a writer, uh, interested in becoming a writer while at the same time working as a U.S. Marine. I, I served as an infantryman and a combat correspondent, and I, I wrote a lot about my experiences in the book, um, as well as a little bit about my childhood growing up around the military. Um, I got out of the Marine Corps in 2006, and I started um I started writing what the earliest iterations of this book right around that time. And then I put it away for about eight, nine years. And then I sort of tried to learn how to be a writer because the early drafts were terrible. And, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, finished undergraduate. And then I, uh, I came to New York and went to NYU and um, learned a heck of a lot in a very short amount of time. And then, uh, you know, I was just about to throw away this book effectively. I think I was, I was in a position where I felt like it wasn't going to sell. And then I uh, got lucky, you know, it was, it was, you know, a lot of, a lot of, you know, I had some good luck kind of hit me in that way and it attracted the right amount of interest. And then it kind of had, a, it kind of was given new life. And then um, over the you know the past couple of years, I've been writing it basically through the pandemic and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing it coming out next week. Isn't it a great time to write during a pandemic? <laughs> There's nowhere to go. <laughs> it was great. I could just sit and work. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, Oddly enough. so, I mean, this book is, is very auto autobiographical, right? Yeah, it's very much so. Yeah. So, I mean, let's, let's just start with talking about your background growing up because you grew up in a military family. That's right. And, you know, explain to me how that experience soaked in over the years after you kind of moved outside of uh, what you call the, the castle walls, right? Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about that. Like, how is it different growing up in a military family in, well, think, in retrospect? 
I think in general terms, it's not too dissimilar um, than, than the average American or average boyhood experience. Um, it just happened to be, I just happened to be surrounded by the things we kind of just watch or kind of things we just see in movies. Like if you grew up watching Top Gun, well, I could go outside my house and I could hear fighter jets. I could look out my window and see them take off. Uh, you know, once or twice a year, I could go sit in them and, and be around them. Um, and, and my stepfather worked on them. And so I was just kind of slow dipped into the culture a little bit. Um, you know, I think it's, it was, it's a family business in a lot of ways, especially now more than ever, you know, it used to be the draft brought in people from kind of all walks of life. Well, now the military really is a, it's a family business. You know, people who, if you look at enlistment rates and you talk to, or you look at the statistics on the motivations of what drive people into the military, it's overwhelmingly uh, over almost, I would say over 50 to 75% of the people who enlist have a direct connection to the military in some way, either through a family member or just environmentally. That's a really um, high rate. I mean, that's, yeah. it, you know, there's a lot of professions that are kind of like that in localized areas like FDNY, for example, the, the fire mm -hmm. department of New York is kind of like that where it's like all very generational. Right. Know? Yeah. And, and, and that was the case with me as far as the military goes. Um, now my trajectory kind of changed a little bit. My, a large part of my family was Air Force. Um, my stepfather was in avionics and then intelligence, and then my mother was in communications. And I had grandparents who were in, um, in intel the intelligence field. And my father was a boom operator on a refueler and an air traffic controller. And but I, I began to kind of get interested in other things toward the, the my teenage years, military wise. I got really fascinated with Vietnam right about the time. Vietnam was kind of hitting our zeitgeist or sort of peaking in our zeitgeist. Uh, so like late eighties or early nineties, especially. And so I just devoured all the literature of it, all the fiction and nonfiction I could get my hands on. I was haunting the base library, the place I lived in Japan, just eating up the literature of the war. And I mean, when and you were growing up, isn't that like when the movie platoon was coming out and all of these in incredible yeah. cinema, you know, like the cinema verite, where it was kind of like trying to show you a realistic picture of, uh, Absolutely. I mean, I, I saw Platoon in 87 after it hit VHS. All right. Born on the 4th um, of July. That's another one. I did. I saw that but year, later on. But yes, that was another one. Hamburger Hill was a was a major motivator. Full Metal Jacket eventually became one. Um, yeah. So there was and there was a whole bumper crop. Of, like, well, there's Tour of Duty, the television show, the series that ran for three years in the uh, late early 90s or late 80s. So, yeah, I, I was just kind of immersed in it and I got really fascinated with it. And so I decided to make a career in the Marine Corps or, or go into the Marine Corps, spent a few years rather. And I enlisted in the infantry and I uh, spent four years there, both as a rifleman in an infantry company and then went on to do some kind of unusual work in the chem bio field, weirdly enough. And then I ended up, uh, excuse me. Oh, no, no worries there. You, you can... Uh... Go ahead and mute yourself on, on huh, spaces. Twice now. It's not muting. Oh, well, uh, here, I'm going to help you out there. I'm going to remove you from speakers. There we go. Perfect. Sorry First times that. for everything. <laughs> They're so much fun. <laughs> but I, I, yeah, yeah. But I see a good crowd listening. And so I'm, yeah. I'm really happy. And by the way, guys, uh, at the end of our chat here, uh, I'm going to save uh, about five to seven minutes for questions. So mm -hmm. start thinking of those questions and you can raise your hands pretty soon. And we're going to take some questions from the audience. But as, as I was saying, you know, one of the, one of the things I mentioned in the book is like 
you know, all that literature, you figure I would read a, about war and I would read about, uh, you know, a, a realistic interpretation of it, the Tim O'Brien's of the world and, and uh, uh, Tobias Wolves and, uh, you know, Larry Heinemann's and not, it should, it should kind of steer me away from that work just by virtue of how violent it is and how, how their portrayal of it was so uh, visceral. And it did exactly the opposite. It just, it was like fuel. It was like shoving logs on a little fire. And I mean, I couldn't wait to go in, in the military. I, I was chomping at the bit as the expression goes, quite frankly. I mean, I, I graduated high school in the summer of 98 and I was out, I was at Paris Island three weeks later. Oh, wow. You know, I was, I mean, like, you really didn't wait. I did not. Yeah. I, I enlisted when I was a senior and then I, uh, yeah, as soon as I graduated, I was sitting around going, why am I waiting? Let's just go now. Why? Let's just get this. Let's go. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, Paris Island is, is the Marines. That's right. That's uh, San Diego. Yeah. And uh, how would you compare just the service branches in general, the Marines versus the air force slightly different, right? I mean, the <laughs> mentality of the gen, you know, this different cultures. How so? It is. Uh, <laughs> the air force is, is very, very, uh, it's very business-like. It's very professional. I'll say that for it. Um, it is an incredibly professional service. But it has it has the veneer of a nine to five. The Marine Corps does too to a certain extent on a day to day level. However, it also has this kind of death cult layer over the top of it. Um, it is very uh, absolute. It's very it can be draconian. Um, it is it is intense, to say the least. Um, and it does produce results to a point. Sometimes it can be a little excessive, but. Overall, it does, it does get results. It has, it's trying to live up to its own, own reputation. And I think it does that typically. Um, but it comes at a certain, you know, it, it can be exhausting. I'll say that for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how much do you think that that code of, of ethics uh, contributed to some of the former service members that we saw um, on January 6th? That, that code of ethics is just very different. Um, you had these people who joined groups that attracted former uh, law enforcement, former military, like uh, the Oath Keepers. Mm. Yeah. So what those guys did is pervert the ethics of the military into something toxic. Yeah. Um, I don't have a lot of quarter for those folks, quite frankly. Um, uh, those uh, one of the one of the unfortunate attributes of the military of the, of the modern military is that it has a tendency to create natural wedges between the military and the civilian population it serves. I saw this in the Marine Corps to an extent. A lot of, a lot of the attitude was that the civilian population was kind of uh, sloppy, to put it, to put it in, in okay. nicer terms. Whereas the Marine Corps was meant to be the rugged end of the rugged end of the spear, so to speak. And they are right that they are that but they create a sort of natural wedge. And I think that what, what ends up happening is the folks in, I'm going to surmise that the folks in the January 6th, 6th um, uh, quasi coup d'etat effectively, uh, you know, or at least attempted one, um, have taken that attitude to like the 10th level because they've pushed it into this realm of, I was in the military the civilian population isn't espousing the views that I think are important, which quite frankly are almost Spartan uh, and, and draconian and a, and a little bit totalitarian. And they felt that they needed to take corrective measures by joining organizations that are antithetical to democracy, quite frankly. 
Yeah. Um, how do you think that the forever wars impacted uh, this culture, th this, you know, what you're describing? Because you're talking about really entering into what most people would describe as a no-win situation in the first place um, and going in there. And then, I mean, I just can't even tell you what the goal of Afghanistan was past, uh, let's say, when Osama bin Laden uh, was found or even – you know, uh, history uncovered that uh, Donald Rumsfeld could have gotten the Taliban to hand over bin Laden and not gone to war there. Um, so, I mean, you have these never ending conflicts. Uh, did you how many tours of duty did you do? Well, I did three, but only one during the uh, I did two during the global war on terror. I did one to East Africa in 04 and one to Iraq in 05, 06. Right. Um, but it's you like, this I'm, is the first time you had people doing two, three, four, sure. many more tours mm -hmm. uh, into an active seen, war zone. I've seen dozens. I've seen people doing 12, 13. A lot of your special operators and people in the special operations community have done uh, numerous tours. Like it's an obscene amount. Um, I think that now, as far as, as far as how it's impacted our culture, I think what it's done is it's created a sort of slow burn. Um, if you look at, you, you can you can sort of arc the arc the trajectory of the wars um, in our cultural zeitgeist by looking at weapons in our culture. So, you know, the AR-15 being the being the example I'll use. So the assault weapons ban gets lifted in 2004, um, and immediately the AR-15 goes for sale. Now the AR-15 is the civilian model of the M16 uh, service rifle that gets used. It is a it is a slightly varied version of that weapon. I read well, your article it, on it, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think that there's a, I think that that's a good way of tracking the trajectory. So like that weapon is like the, is the symbol of the war on terror. I think in a lot of ways, the modern version of it. And it's become sort of that it's become, it, there's a lot of, a lot of meaning packed to that weapon. Well, it's also very important to, to people on the right who espouse anti-government views. Um, I mean, every time you, or, or a very martial attitude toward, toward what America should be. Um, but it's also very stripped down and filtered. It's very rosy. It doesn't take into consideration the ramifications those weapons have on culture. Um, now, I don't have necessarily an issue with people who own guns. I, I don't, I own firearms. But I think that it says a lot what kind of weapon you want to own. And if you want to own a rifle like that, you're making a statement about yourself and the culture. You're suggesting that, that I want to be, uh, I want to live in a space that I want to live in the same space as a soldier lives in, even though I'm not actually participating in the the the, the, the ideals of the country that a soldier might. Um, it's very hollow. It's a very hollow form of of, of this pantomiming service. Quite frankly, there was an article in the New York Times not uh, not but a few years ago that said exactly that. A kid said he's, he bought the gun simply because he wanted to feel like a soldier without going through the motions of doing. Um, that is a huge, that, that is a direct link to me to, to between the wars and, and our culture. Um, a lot of the top video games in our, in our community as well are, are, are games that are set in those conflicts, um, which sort of adds a little bit of fuel to that. Um, I don't say this to criticize them. I think that they're just, they're just part of an aspect of our culture that people find interesting, but only on a very myopic and very thin and shallow way. Um, I think if they really got down into the guts of these wars, they'd find they'd be less interested in uh, trying to represent them in some sort of pop cultural narrative. Um, well, uh, on that note, directly. on that note, um, I read a story that you wrote for The Nation 
about overseeing uh, democratic elections in Iraq. And uh, I was hoping you could share some of the glamorous, I'm sure glamorous uh, stories uh, from serving in Iraq during an election, especially in reflection after what's happened in our country in the last year. And, and we have an election tomorrow as well. So that's right. um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Because that's just a, you know, it, like I think it gives people a perspective they're not going to have because how many of us have served in a, overseas during a, in a war zone during an election? And, uh, you know, I can't tell you how much how the Iraqi people that I interacted with. So let me let me frame it. Let me say it this way. So the valley that I was operating in was was effectively controlled by you know uh, Al Qaeda in in, Amer in Iraq rather um, the AQI and then and then the the Iraq insurgency. You couldn't operate. You couldn't patrol the valley at all. Uh, the cities inside this valley near the Syrian border. Um, so we had to clear that. We had to kind of go house to house, and we spent. A good three months just kind of clearing out you know a good 40 miles of terrain and we got through half of it and we started opening up the, the half that we had cleared to voting in, refer in the constitutional referendum and it was you felt this breath of fresh air kind of hit that community you know the, the people there they really wanted to be a part of the process yeah you know uh, they really respected the need to vote and they turned out to vote and that was something they had never really been given an opportunity to do like that, you know, voting in, in Iraq had not been exactly a, a, a common event, either in, under the Ba'ath Party or, or, or in that particular area up to 2005. So, and yet they, once they got word that, hey, you can show up and be a part of the process of picking your leaders and picking the, the details of your constitution, they showed up for it. And they showed up, you know, almost, almost to a man. They did very well. The, the, I believe the population numbers were really high in my area uh, in terms of turnout. Um, it really shows like the, the value of democratic institutions, especially when you, you know, when you don't have them, it shows, you know, they, you know, they shouldn't be taken for granted, quite frankly. That was a really encouraging aspect of my time there, actually. I think that, I think if, had I just been involved in combat operations without seeing the benefit of it, at least locally, I think I would have been far more jaded than I am. Um, that said, I mean, the, the, product of those efforts were messy and clumsy and we did not help ourselves in, in creating a, a easy transition out of that country and creating an easy democracy for them to, to build and form on their own terms. Oh yeah. There was uh, quite a few other problems with Iraq's democracy, um, yeah. including foreign interference, which I think is a theme that we've all noticed uh, mm -hmm. here over the last five or six years now as a dominant theme of our politics. So, I mean, where do we go from here? That's my big question. Like, where do we go from here? The the military involvement in these forever wars is effectively over, but the recovery is going to last for quite a long time. But, uh, I mean, how does America change its military or, you know, do we need to change the military or both uh, to react to this culture that you've described? You know, the 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 toxic elements the just the, in general how how do we deal with this as a society because the military um, you know plays a very important role in our national security um, but it also can be abused as we have seen so where do we go from here I think it takes we need to create mechanisms that encourage civic participation outside of the local political arena you know all politics is local you know and and 
we have a tendency to focus our political interests on things that affect us directly. Wars in Afghanistan and Iraq didn't, um, unless you had a, a father or son or a daughter um, or, or somebody that you were directly connected with who fought and served and was wounded or killed. Uh, otherwise, and that was a very small sliver of the population. Um, otherwise, we had no real interest in it. There was no reason to engage. It was kind of a back page subject in our culture, had been for you know decades. I think it's, it's, a, it's something of a, I think it's a, a Pollyanna idea, but I think that a, a non, uh, I think some kind of civil service or a, a obligatory service toward um, just uh, with, with obligatory participation is, is needed for this. Um, I dare say draft, but because I don't want it to assume that it needs to be military. One of the ideas that we have this idea that the only way to be patriotic is to carry a gun in war. And it's not like you could pick up trash in your street and be patriotic. You could volunteer your time somewhere and be patriotic. That's patriotic. I mean, that is patriotism, helping somebody, helping another countryman or somebody become an American is a patriotic effort. Um, and that needs to be rewarded and it needs to be considered on the same level as somebody who fights in wars. Um, so I think that, I think that creating a mechanism that allows for that, that requires civic engagement is, is really important. Um, now, as far as the military goes, I think one of the big disappointments that I had is that the generals, the generals who basically fought Afghanistan were trained by the generals who helped rebuild the U.S. Army after Vietnam. The United States military after Vietnam was in shambles. Yeah. Non-commissioned officer corps ceased, practically ceased to exist. Its officer corps was undertrained, and its junior enlisted morale was terrible. And the officers at the time, they'd seen the colonels and generals, remade the military into something very, very potent. It had to, it had no choice, it had, it had the Soviet Union to contend with. Um, those lessons were lost. All the lessons that put us into Vietnam, that continued Vietnam, were suddenly forgotten after 9-11. We assumed that because we had a moral, moral standing uh, or a, a moral position by virtue of 9-11 itself, that we could kind of do whatever we wanted to a point, or we could let go of certain understood norms and understood understood strategies that worked in what and also we could we also seem to forget what didn't work um i think about iraq specifically in the counterinsurgency where we fought there i mean we effectively just gave up the entire iraqi army to the winds and created the insurgency we created the insurgency with that yes right, <laughs> right. i mean it when was, you take was, away a man's rank his status and his paycheck what else do you have left right. Taking away a man's livelihood is not going to be a best way to make an ally out of him. Um, Probably not. Yeah, and if they had uh, if they had kept him, kept that army together and just replaced the leadership that led it, I think we would have had that that war would have been a lot shorter and probably a lot more successful. I think um, both. Yeah, and I think that um, I think that the military needs to get its head around that. I hope that's going to happen. I think I have a, a certain amount of faith that that. They don't want to replicate these problems. Um, but there was definitely a kind of shrugging of shoulders and status quo to the norms of the wars as they, as they, as they developed. And I have a huge problem with that. And most veterans do most of the friends, most of my veteran friends do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to, to deal with because uh, once you've normalized war like that, people just see it as the status quo and, the status quo is something that uh, who's who's ever against maintaining the status quo, right? I mean, it's the status quo. So, I mean, I wanted to throw open the floor to questions a little bit and see if we have any hands going up. 
uh, from inside the crowd. I would love to get some questions from the 30 listeners that we've got. So if there's anybody that wants to uh, ask a question, now is your chance. And I also wanted to give out some information about the Miami Book Fair because it is coming up at the in just two weeks, actually. Uh, it's all the way from, and uh, you know, I hate to say it, I have to look at my calendar and make sure I give you guys the right dates. It's from November 14th through November 21st. And you can actually go to at Miami Book Fair on Twitter. Uh, and that's got all of their information, miamibookfair.com. It's it's a hybrid program these days. So some things are happening online. Some things are happening uh, digitally. Uh, some are in person. Uh, if you're here in Miami, of course, you can attend the in-person events. But uh, keep an eye out for the uh, digital stuff. I, w- I just want to share uh, Jared's time. Jared, do you know what time you're going to be on this the, 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 uh, at the book fair this year? Got it right here. I'm just tell you. find it here for you. <laughs> Let's see. I think it's. Uh, let me look here. I apologize. I should know this off the top of my. I mean, it's 12 p.m. Uh, November 19. Right. So it's going to be uh, available on demand after Friday, uh, 11, uh, November 19th. At what time? Noon. At noon. Okay. And you can find out more at www.miamibookfair.com. Do I have any questions, anybody? Anybody want to make a comment, question? We've just got a couple of minutes. I've got another wonderful author from the book fair coming up in a few minutes. But in the meantime, uh, Jared, can you tell our listeners where they can find you uh, in other spaces, websites, and a little bit uh, where they can find uh, the book, Volunteers, uh, Growing Up in the Forever War? Sure. I mean, my Twitter's at Jared underscore Alexander. Um, the book you can buy at um, Bookshop, which if you're looking for an alternative to Amazon, that's a great, a great place to find it. Um, Amazon's naturally there. I think it's also sold at Walmart and Barnes and Noble, um, as well as Workman, uh, Workman Publishing, and Algonquin Books as well. And I saw you have a website. What's the website? It's just uh, JaredAlexander.com. Gotcha. No W. No. Oh, we leave that out there. I got you. <laughs> yeah. It, <laughs> Good choice. I like it. I like it. <laughs> well, uh, let me just pull my collar away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no W in that. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, Jared, I really appreciate you joining me tonight. And we've got a couple of minutes left. I don't see any listener questions here. So, uh, you know, what did we not talk about? Wait, uh, I see a request. Okay, yeah, I've got one question, and uh, we've got two minutes, okay? So uh, I have invited uh, Amanda Finley uh, onto the stage. Hi, yeah. Um, I'm an anthropologist by training, an archaeologist. My brothers are both military. I've been begging them for years to get me one of those decks of playing cards that uh, I feel like one thing that our military maybe started to do right, but we just failed. We stopped. Um, they, they created these decks of playing cards for uh, all different places in Iraq and Afghanistan, helping people to identify items of cultural significance so that when they came across these things in the field, um, they would know to protect it. And I'm just wondering um, what your thoughts on, on the, are, are on the role of cultural preservation instead of 
warfare. Well, I think that needs to be the first thing that goes on. I mean, the, 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 you know, one of the things I was really struggling to watch is watching, you know, the um, Bath Party and, and uh, insurgency in Iraq destroy the Mesopotamian artifacts, especially down up, up in the Fertile Crescent. That was terrible. I mean, that's, that needs to be preserved. Um, as far as the cards go, I, you know, I, I, I think those are hard to come by even for, for most people in the military. The, it was funny because oh, you talked about the cards. Do you? I've oh, got funny, a deck. I, I, I don't think I ever saw one. Um, I think the only, when, I, when you first started talking about the deck of cards, I was thinking of the, the ones that we had that you could buy at the, the PX of all the, um, the most wanted, all the, the sort of terrorist most wanted deck of cards. That was almost. No, I, I will. I'll take some pictures and send them to you. Uh, we, I did a, I did a cultural resource management project at a military installment a few years ago, and they came out and handed these to us. And I was like, "Oh my God, my brothers are terrible. You are the best." <laughs> well, thank you for your question, Amanda. I really appreciate it. And uh, I've got to go ahead and get uh, Dara on. She's on the next Zoom. But Jared, thank you so much for joining me on Spaces tonight to talk about your new book and your appearance at the Miami Book Fair. Thanks, Grant. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. And we are going to go ahead and get Dara Horn on the line in just one second. Hang in there, everybody. I appreciate you sticking with me. This is my first live uh, Spaces. and. We've got two amazing authors from the Miami Book Fair. Uh, you know, anybody ever been? Anybody? No? Just hang in there for two seconds. Tara's going to be right on with us, I promise. And we're going to talk about her amazing new book, People Love Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present. And we should have Dara in here. Just up oh, there she is. She's coming in right now. And she's connecting, so everybody just bear with me. Hello, Dara. How are you? Hi, how are you? Great, great. So we're live on Twitter Spaces, so everybody can hear you right now. Uh, we have about two dozen listeners and a really good crew. So say hello to everybody on there, and we, we'd hello. love to see you more on Twitter. <laughs> Um, so everybody take a listen. We've got Tara Horn here. She wrote the book. People love dead Jews reports from a haunted present. This book is making a lot of waves. Tara, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? About myself yes. rather than the book before the book. <laughs> let's start with yourself. Um, sure. Well, so this book is a little, uh, a different project for me because it's a nonfiction book as you right. can tell by its title. Um, yes. and I am actually a novelist. I've published uh, my previous books. I have five novels that I published prior to this. Um, and in my other life, I'm an academic. I have a doctorate in Hebrew and Yiddish literature, and those are some subjects that I teach in various places. Um, so th that's, uh, that's, that's who I am pretty much. I mean, I've, there are other things I do with my life as well. Sure. But, uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, that's how you got into writing and writing books. You know, not everybody does that, I think. <laughs> so what inspired you to cross the boundary and go from writing fiction to this nonfiction work, which, like I said, is stirring up a lot of eyeballs. I saw the review <laughs> in the Washington Post. So, Yes. Um, well, so, you know, I did not want to write this book. 
Um, I spent basically 20 years not writing this book. Um, and what I mean by that is that I, um, all of my novels focus on, um, on various aspects of Jewish culture. My previous book was literally called Eternal Life, and it was about a woman who was 2,000 years, uh, years old and couldn't die. Um, so, you know, this like morbid topic was really not my speed. Um, and, you know, I really was, had avoided writing this book for so long, but what happened was, you know, it, I got to a point where I felt compelled to write it. And what I mean by that is, um, it is a reflection on uh, rising anti-Semitism in this country and around the world in the past five years. But it really sort of happened to me um, through um, sort of a more benign way than that, um, where I was in, in 2018, I was approached by Smithsonian Magazine, which asked me to write a piece for them about Anne Frank. And I just remember getting that request and feeling like, wow, I really don't want to write about Anne Frank. And what that, and you know, the normal response to that would be like, to turn down this assignment, but you know, I'm not a very normal person because I'm a writer. And so instead I was like, you know, this is really uncomfortable for me. Why? And that was sort of what made it interesting. Yeah. So that yeah. is, uh, that, that is definitely a novel way, uh, <laughs> pun not intended, but kind of, uh, of, of getting into writing a particular book, uh, that you just, you didn't want to do it. And you're like, well, I'm going to do this just to prove why, uh, figure out why I don't like it essentially. Yeah, well, sort of. Like, solid so start, so, solid start. Yeah, well, well, I mean, but what happened was it's really, it was really more than that though, because that's, it was that I found myself sort of staring down a problem that I couldn't ignore, which was what, which was that I found that I, you know, it was, I mean, I had written novels before, but I also wrote a lot for, you know, I've write a lot of essays and reviews and feature pieces and things like that for, you know, a lot of different publications. And what I started noticing is that the only thing that my editors at mainstream publications wanted me to write about were, as I say, dead Jews. So, um, you know, this, I did write this piece and then, you know, um, I became, as I put it in the New York Times, uh, in the book, I became the New York Times' go-to person for the emerging literary genre of synagogue shooting op-eds. This was not a job I applied for. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I just noticed like, you know, people keep asking me to write about this and that sort but, of, but that's again, all, that's the time. That's the only yes. time. Right. The, suddenly yeah, the interest and, peaks. Yes. Well, and it's not just the interest peaks. It's that I started seeing it was more sinister than that because I started seeing that these editors wanted me to say something in particular and it wasn't what I wanted to say. Um, so, for example, these editors at Smithsonian who wanted me to write this piece about Anne Frank, they like wanted it to be this like, you know, sad and beautiful and inspiring thing. Instead, what I realized was the reason I felt uncomfortable was because in 2018, I had read a news article about something that had happened at the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam, which is this, you know, this, this office building where Anne Frank and her family were hiding from the Nazis. It's now like this blockbuster museum, right? Like they get, I don't know, 2 million visitors a year. There was a young Jewish man who worked at this museum in 2018, and the museum would not allow him to wear his yarmulke to work. They made him hide it under a baseball hat. That's really wild. I mean, to yeah. do that to a Jewish person working at a museum about Anne Frank. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, as I put it in my piece, uh, which is the first chapter in the book, you know, he like appealed this decision to the board of the museum. They deliberated for four months and then they finally relented and let him wear his yarmulke to, book, uh, wear to, his yarmulke to work. And as I put it in the piece, four months is a really long time for the Anne Frank house to ponder whether or not it was a great idea to force a Jew into hiding. And what I realized was, and then I went to look up this little news item and I discovered 
a different news item from 2017, where at the same museum, visitors had noticed something weird about the audio guides. Um, you know, it's one of these international museums. They've got it, audio guides in 15 languages. Yeah, the and audio guides know. are like how, you know, you, you record like 10 different uh audio tracks in 10 different languages and then say, hit the button for your language and then hit the button right. for your, and exactly. yeah, all the museums have these things. Exactly. Right. But this one, it was like, you know, they have a little British flag and it says English, right? There's a little French flag and it says Francais until you get to Hebrew, Hebrew, no flag. Oh, you couldn't make this up, right. I mean, and then you realize like this, these might be PR mishaps, but they're not mistakes. Right. And then you realize, and what I realized was that there was this demand that Jews erase themselves in order to participate in any kinds of public conversations. Right. And so when I, so I wrote this piece and then, you know, I'm asked to do these op-eds about these synagogue shootings. And then what I, what I did was I, I sort of like dove into this topic. Cause I'm like, there's this thing that people do with dead Jews where you're supposed to act all sad and beautiful. And like, we're learning something big about humanity, but in the process we're erasing living Jews. And so I, writing this book, I traveled around the world. I went to all these places that were um, what's called Jewish heritage sites sure. in various countries around the world. And as I put it, Jewish heritage sites is a brilliant marketing term because it sounds so much better than property seized from dead or expelled Jews. Like who wants to go to that, right? And I just sort of noticed this like really cynical way that this history was being used. And I mean, I took this uh, topic and I, and I discovered, I looked into it in literature. I looked at it in lots of different sort of different venues in life. And I just saw this pattern emerging and I just sort of felt like someone needs to say something about this. And well, did, like did you go to Prague by any chance? I haven't been to Prague. Um, I mean, no, I didn't go to, I'm sorry. I didn't go to Prague for this book, but I have been there. And yeah. it's, yes, it's like this Epcot thing. Well, well, it's not just that, but um, so there's a Jewish museum in the old quarter of Prague that is still there today. Um, and of course there's the, the, the synagogue with a large memorial that has lists the names of all the Praguers that were, uh, you know, taken away during the Holocaust. But what really shocked me when I went there is that I found out that Hitler had actually created that Jewish museum. Oh yes. And, oh no, and I know he what intended you're talking about. to create yes. it as the museum of an extinct people. And I'm like, yes. that is fucked up. But I, I just feel like when I see the title of this book, I just it, it just takes me back to that experience. That's exactly what, yes. Well, that's a lot of what this book is about. Um, it's a, I mean, one of the places I go in the book is China where I visit a city in China, which is a city called Harbin in Northeastern China. This is a city that was actually built by Jews in the early 20th century. It's this bizarre thing where like they, basically the Russian government like needed to build a town as a part of the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Um, and they sent all these Russian Jews to build this town for them. There were 20,000 Russian Jews who built this town. And then over the course of the 20th century, like various regimes made life more and more impossible for this Jewish community until the last um, the last Jewish family was evacuated by the Israeli government in 1962. Um, today, there is one Jew in this city of 16 million people in Harbin. But the government spent $30 million restoring Jewish heritage sites. $30 million, which like, is Chinese a lot of money. Government? For oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they're open about why. This is the interesting part is, unlike Prague, they say the quiet part out loud. They had all these international conferences where they literally say, We've heard that Jews have money and we would like some. And if we restore these Jewish heritage sites, rich Jews will come as tourists and as investors and give us their money. I could not make this up. 
Oh my God. Like the mayor of Harbin gave a speech about how we love all these important Jews like JP Morgan and Nelson Rockefeller. In case you were wondering, neither of those people were Jewish. And like you go to, the, and I went to Harbin, I went to the city and they have like these, it's like Epcot, they do this Epcot thing, but it's like so bizarre because you go to their, they have a Jewish museum there, which is in one of these old synagogues. And they literally have life-size plaster people, like, like sculptures of like life-size plaster people just posed like with furniture. They'll have like a guy sitting at a desk, a life-size plaster sculpture. And then the caption says, real Jewish businessman in Harbin. It's like, wow. it's like a cigar store <laughs> Indian. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like, it's the most bizarre. And then like you walk down the street and there's like, you know, these historic homes and they put a plaque on the wall that says this house was built by a Jew. So and, like, wild. I couldn't make this up, right? I mean, it's the most bizarre thing. So, and in the book, I just sort of dig into this and I sort of see like this like really weird affection for dead and expelled Jews who aren't there anymore which is then coupled also with this like real contempt for actual living Jews and real actual Jewish culture. And you see it, like I said, you see it as far as China, but then you also see it here in the United States. And so that's a lot of what I go into in the book. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of ground to cover in all of those topics. And, and something that you mentioned is, is the shootings here. Yes. Right. Um, so, I mean, let, let's go past, they were tragedies. Nobody wants that to happen. I mean, you know, there are gun tragedies, there are cultural tragedies. But how do you think that this effect that you're reporting on here in this nonfiction book, everybody, nonfiction, this is not a fiction, this is not a story. Um, you know, how do you think this impacts the way that that Jewish people are viewed? Uh, let's start like in America here where you have the effect, but I mean, in other places as well. But especially here, let's talk about it. Like, how does this crazy idea that you've kind of picked up on impact perception? Sure. So, um, you know, like I, I, as I said, I was like the go-to person for the literary genre of synagogue shooting op-eds. And so I had many opportunities to think about this. Um, you know, the first thing I noticed was that my children are growing up in a country that's really different from the one I grew up in, which is very disturbing. Um, I'm 44 years old. Um, and what I noticed is that, I mean, and this was something, you know, there was, you know, not, these kinds of attacks were not happening when I was growing up. Um, and, but what I noticed though, is that my children really didn't think they were that weird. Really? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, and so, and how old are the kids? Well, at the time, I mean, now they're a little bit a little older, older right now. Yeah. Now I have uh, two teenagers and two, like I have a 16, a 14, a 12 and a nine. So, but this was, you know, a few years ago, Yeah. Um, you know, in 2018, I guess the oldest was 13 and, you know, they were sort of, I mean, there were a few things. First of all, they, they kind of, they had grown up in this atmosphere where like synagogues are always guarded. And that was something I hadn't really thought about. And I remember one point before these shootings, when my oldest child was like maybe nine, she was part of the children's choir at our synagogue and they did a performance at a church that was down the street. And I remember walking into this church with her and she just kind of stops when she gets into the lobby of the church and she just looks at me and she's like, wait a minute, we can just walk in. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, there's nobody here checking to make sure that we're allowed to be here. And I'm like, yeah, there's not. She's like, they don't even have like a buzzer thing on the door. I'm like, yeah, no. At a church, you can just walk in. And it's yeah. like, I can't, how do I explain this to a child? Right. I mean, it's literally down the street from my synagogue. It's yeah, not like no, it's no, I can, t I can totally see it. I mean, I, yeah. I, you know, I think that we both grew up on the border, right? Like 
you know, um, like for example, my sister, when she was still going to high school, she's only a couple of years younger than me. We're about the same age here. Uh, she had to go through metal detectors to get into school. Right. Yes. But like, you know, we experienced something very personal, uh, growing up, which is that I went to a religious day school for elementary school and they actually, there was a anti-Semitic attack on the school. And so I kind of saw the guardrails starting to go up there because mm. I, I went through that where you, you, we didn't have anybody, there was nobody guarding the place. I mean, there was the yeah. typical school security guard type, but you never noticed them. And all of a sudden it was like, now there was somebody posted at the door, like yeah. watching everybody who comes in as opposed to, you know, just like whatever, anybody can come and go here as you please. Exactly. And, and it is like, it's so glaring that like, and I think a lot of people in the Jewish community don't even see it anymore. Um, Cause I know that like one thing I mentioned in the book is the rabbi of my synagogue told me there was a, he was at a meeting uh, in our, in the, this, the town, in the town for like local clergy with the police. And like, it was a meeting about security for these congregations. And the whole, he says, he's like, I sat through this meeting, the entire meeting, these church officials are debating whether or not to put a lock on the door, just like a buzzer lock on a door. And he's like, I'm just sitting there in stunned silence. I'm like, we've done active shooter training with the nursery school staff. Maybe we should like pool resources here. <laughs> Cause it's like, you know, it was just like, he's like, they have no idea. They just have no idea. So this was one thing I was thinking about, but another thing that I thought about though, um, and you know, to go back to your question about like how this looks here was I write at the end of the book about the attacks on the Hasidic community in New York and New Jersey. I live in New Jersey. Um, that happened just before the beginning of the pandemic. And that was something that to me was a really, really kind of a shocking thing to see because what I did was I looked through all of the news reporting about those attacks. Okay. And yeah, these were like lethal attacks. So like one for uh, anyone listening who doesn't remember these or doesn't know about this, this was, um, there was a shooting at a, a kosher grocery store in Jersey City, New Jersey. Um, that was, a, it was basically an attack on- It was targeted. Hasidic yeah, yeah, target attack against it was a Hasidic community in, in Jersey City. Um, and then there was another another example. Of this is um, there was a, a, a machete attack in Muncie, New York. This is a, a, a small town in upstate New York with a large Hasidic population. Somebody like walked into a crowded Hanukkah party and just started like slashing people with a four foot long machete. And what I did was I looked at the news reporting on these attacks and I couldn't even find a news story about these attacks that didn't say something derogatory about the community being attacked in the process of reporting the attack. And that was really That's shocking. really wild. Yes. Well, so like they would say something like, I remember with the, with the one about Jersey City, they said, you know, there were, uh, every single article said, you know, this Jewish Orthodox Jewish community was gentrifying this minority neighborhood, which was really interesting because number one, these people were fleeing gentrification. They'd been priced out of Brooklyn, which is why they came to New Jersey. Right. Um, yeah. Number two, um, these are highly visible members of the world's most historically persecuted minority. These aren't just like, you know, white folks. Like these are like guys with like hats. I mean, it's just not like subtle that these are people who these people are. And number three, like, is there this murderous rage against gentrification where people are like walking into blue bottle coffee with automatic weapons and blowing away white hipsters? Because yeah, I haven't seen that. I missed that. Like, I missed that. I don't think that gentrification is the problem here. And so that's like the first, like this, like sort of gaslighting reporting, right? And then the same thing in this town in this, this machete attack in Muncie. Like every article was like, well, you know, just for context, there was this 
zoning battle between the Hasidic and non-Hasidic residents of this town, first of all, irrelevant since, as it says in the same article, the man who was the uh, perpetrator was from a town 45 minutes away. So don't think he really cared about the zoning. Number two. <laughs> oh my uh, God. In the same article, in the same article. But number two, do we normally resolve municipal disputes with a machete? Because, you know, silly me, I left mine at home before the last school board meeting. <laughs> and I'm just yeah. thinking like, you know, why are they reporting this this way? And I realized they're sending a signal to the public. And the signal is that this is actually okay. And that these people deserve it. And what I realized, the most shocking thing is what you realize is that, you know, people who are attacking the Hasidic community are not doing this because they disagree with Hasidic beliefs and practice. They're doing this because these people are visible. That's all. And so then you sort of think about like, well, what does this really mean that we're trying to like pretend this isn't happening? Well, I mean, I want to talk about the elephant in the room now, now that we've talked about the book extensively. <laughs> um, let's talk about the impact of a politician, uh, perhaps uh, using stereotypes and extolling uh, the same kind of negative images that you're talking about and the impact on our society. I think you know that of which I speak, Voldemort himself. Um, how much do you think that this is uh, stemming from uh, you know, a person of authority and leadership in our country uh, spreading these kind of ideas? And how much do you think that these ideas were simply spread so much that that's what he absorbed? I mean, what came first? the racist or the racism? Well, so I think that there's, you know, I mean, well, let's just, I don't have a lot of great things to say about Voldemort, put that out there. Um, but I do think that there is something larger happening here. Yeah. And that, and then I think that what, you know, I mean, the, the truth about Trump is that what he, I mean, there's, he's, he's both a symptom and a, and he's, he's an, a cause and effect of extremism. Right. And you see that extremism. I mean, truthfully, you see it on both sides of the political spectrum. Sure. Um, you know, so and but I think that, you know, this is what we're really talking about is like extremism and sort of um, this is like there's a larger trend here, which is polarization, um, you know, and a larger trend also toward like people saying whatever the hell they want on social media. I mean, that sort of was like to me, this, and, and that was going on way before, you know, way before Trump. And I think that sort of is, to me, the sort of interesting thing. I think there's a couple dynamics that were in place way before Trump um, that Trump simply exacerbated. Um, one is this like extreme vitriol that you see on social media that then you then starts emerging in real life as well. Um, you know, because like it really was, you know, the what I was what I remember is sort of a watershed point was really a much, much before in terms of like public expressions of anti-Semitism in this country. What I remember is like, about 15 years ago, when news articles started to open up comment sections, right, where you would read an article online and there'd be And then, there, yeah, you'd have a string of comments, yeah. Anytime you had any article that said anything about Jews or Israel or anything even slightly remotely related to any of the, to something Jewish, it was just like a, a, a just like a, an open sewer line underneath the comments. And eventually some of these outlets got smarter about it and started moderating. But like, I remember seeing that and being like, it was like a curtain went up, right? Where it was like, suddenly you're like seeing what people are thinking. And yeah. I, I mean, yeah. when I was in college, I used to have, I, I, I had a couple summer jobs working at various 
magazines um you know and this was like in the analog era of like 1998 where like you know my job as the summer intern at the new republic or at time magazine or whatever was like reading the letters to the editor and deciding which ones we were going to print and like we did get you know we got like the looney bin letters I but bet. we did not print them oh yeah that's true and there yeah. weren't that many of them right because yeah, it was yeah. only like you know you get like the crazy person from you know who was like writing from prison or or just you know just a you know there, there were people who were writing demented things and there were people who were writing hateful things but number one there weren't that many of them and number two we did not run them and then suddenly these papers were running these things and it was sort of like it just was to me as a just as a reader I remember reading these and thinking like is this that is this like just a few crazy people it doesn't appear to be because there's a whole lot of these and then number two, it's like, it was like a curtain went up. It was like, suddenly you got to see what people were thinking. And that was really shocking. So that's one piece. Another piece, I think that's a longer term trend is that um, I honestly think that like people, you know, that people in the United States for like the generations after World War, World War II were just like chagrined by the Holocaust, right? Which was like perpetrated by America's enemy. And was like so grotesque that like it kind of made anti-Semitism socially unacceptable. Yeah. For a while. Right. But then I feel like what we have now is like, you know, people who like like sort of viscerally remember those events are dying off. And then it's like what basically it's almost like a regression to a norm. Right. I mean, it's like kind of like hating Jews is normal. And now we're going back to normal. So I, I sort of, you know, I think it's very easy to blame Trump. Um, but I sort of you know, he, he's both a cause and a symptom. And, you know, and I think that there's, I think there's something much bigger happening that, that is not about like any one person. Well, I'll say this. Um, when, when he that arrived, said, I, I don't have anything great to say about Trump. I will, the, I will say that's, that. but, that's but, good you know, enough. I mean, <laughs> but there are a lot enough. of people, I don't have a lot of great things to say. About. Sure. Sure. On, on all ends of the political spectrum, there are many people I don't have a lot of great things to say about. And, you know, so I, when I don't Some know are very people, fine people, I, I assume. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, when, when Trump arrived, I wrote a very long format article in uh, the Huffington Post. And I just expected that every mainstream outlet was going to tear him apart as a racist. And, you know, on the night of the 2016 election, I revisited that article and I wrote a story called If Trump Gets Elected, This Is Why. And it was all about how every single outlet had downplayed or excluded all the racist things that he said at that uh, uh, announcement in 2015, ironically, except for Breitbart News, of uh, the platform for the alt-right, which is just a rebrand of the neo-Nazis. Now, I'm going to take a break here for a second and just let everybody know that Dara is going to be at the Miami Book Fair, and you can see what she's going to be doing digitally. She's going to be available on demand and live uh, on November 18th. It's Thursday, November 18th, right? Um, you're asking me, but I, I I don't know as well as you do. <laughs> Thursday, November 18th. And you guys should check out at Miami Book Fair on Twitter. They actually do tweet and you could interact with them, I do believe. Um, a few people follow them. And you can go to MiamiBookFair.com actually for everything. They, you know, all the authors, uh, Dara and Jared are the first two of many that I'm going to bring onto spaces in the next couple of weeks. And, uh, the Miami book fair is just a special event. If you're here at home, uh, you can actually go in person. www.miamibookfair.com is where everything is situated at. And this is the part of the show where I get to take a few questions from everybody. So everybody who's been patiently listening in the space, I'm inviting you guys raise those hands 
And uh, Dara, how much time do you have to take some questions? Um, I'm here. Okay. So, I mean, I'd love to get some questions from you guys. Questions, comments. Uh, if it's a comment, keep it under a minute. But uh, questions and, you know, we'll keep going here while you guys uh, formulate those wonderful questions. Raise those hands and let me know uh, what your questions are for Dara Horn. And by the way, uh, for those who are going to be watching the video later, uh, the wonderful book is People Love Dead Jews, uh, Reports from a Haunted Present by Dara Horn. So what have you not told me about this book that you're dying to tell me? Because I know you sit through about only like 10 of these interviews a week to promote the book right now. And you haven't told anybody anything about the book, I would imagine. But what is it that you haven't told anybody that you're like, man, if I only had time? <laughs> Gosh, um, I'm speaking a lot about the book. Um, but one thing, oh, well, this is something I should add is that I also have a podcast. Oh, which is do. a spinoff of the book. Yes. Um, it's, it's, a, it's called Adventures with Dead Jews. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's actually different stories from the book because as I put it in the book, um, you know, the world's love for dead Jews is far too, book, it's far too large for one book to contain. So it's a lot of stories that were like too weird to go in the book. Um, and, but it's, it's very much the same premise, but it's, um, it's also like, it's, it's actually very funny. Um, the production team that made it, like they found the background music by listening to all the background music from Curb Your Enthusiasm. So that tells you something about the tone. Oh my gosh. This, uh, but it is, <laughs> but it is like a tour through like weirder corners of Jewish history that were so weird that they couldn't make it into the book. So um, yeah, so that's something else uh, people should know about. That's very cool. And uh, so, I mean, do you have some websites for that? Anything, anything else, any swag? Come on, tell everybody where do yes, they find well, I mean, it's so, yeah, the, the people produce the production team and I always were joking about it, like, it's time to make merch, right? <laughs> oh, like tote bags, like dead Jews tote bags. Right? Like, no one's taking, you know, how about like beach, people love dead Jews beach towels. Like, you know, no one's taking your seat at the pool with that. Um, so, well, well, but to go to your question um, about, you know, something that, you know, people, you know, that I, I would like people to ask me about is that, you know, this is like kind of a bigger, you know, to me, this is a book that is about Jewish history. And it is about the Jewish present, but I think it is about like a larger question about the challenge that we face in this country with, with, with dealing with diversity. Okay. Because, That's and I think true. it's like, it speaks to kind of a flaw in the way our country has thought about diversity in the past. And what I mean by that is, I feel like there's been this sort of educational approach to anti, like, like anti-bias education um, is usually based on this idea that, you know, oh, look at this fill in the blank group. You shouldn't hate those people because they're just like everyone else, right? That's like sort of this idea that we have like, oh, like you shouldn't hate Jews because Jews are just like everybody else. And what's sort of really interesting to me about that concept is how you know, how really it sort of interferes with people's dignity, right? Because what you're basically saying is like, I will only, you know, accept and respect another person to the extent that they're like me, <laughs> right? Which is really what you're telling people. You say like, oh, those other people, you shouldn't hate them because they're just like everyone else. You and know, the when you put it that thing, way, when you put it that way, it kind of reminds me of the concept of crate training for puppies, which is that they see the crate and the crate trains them. And then they see the rest of your home as just a bigger crate. And then that's how the training works. So, but, but what do you do? I mean, what do you do? How do you get people to move across the divide a little bit? Oh, 
Well, but I think that's sort of the, that's the missing piece is like curiosity, right? Because I mean, the really interesting thing to me about this approach, you know, from a Jewish perspective is like Jews spent 3000 years not being like everybody else, right? Like uncoolness was always Judaism's brand, like, you know, ever for like, you know, since 3000 years ago when Jews were the first people to, you know, worship a bossy, unsexy, invisible God, right? Like that wasn't cool, right? And, but what's interesting and just one of them. Terrible. Yes, right. Only one bossy, unsexy, invisible god. Like not fun at all. Like everybody else had, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe of like sexy gods they were sacrificing virgins to or whatever. So like, you know, this was no fun. But like, what's interesting is that like you see this sort of Judaism is like kind of this counter counterculture that weaves its way through the history of the West. And I think that so when you say how do you bridge that divide, I think genuine curiosity about like human diversity would really make a difference and really learning the content of people's cultures. Like if you think about, and this is something that isn't in my book, um, but I've thought about it a lot is like, if you think about like a kid's social studies textbook, um, you know, where they're learning about world history, like what does it say in that textbook about Jews, right? If there's an ancient history part of that textbook, it maybe has like a page about the Israelites who they don't even mention are Jews, right? They might as well be Phoenicians. They're like dead people from a long time ago. Actually, I heard from uh, quite a few evangelicals that they're the Israelites. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, yes. And in New York, there's other, there's, you know, I think there's some, it's like, there's some people, black Hebrews or something that go yelling at people. There's that too. Yes. Making a similar yes. claim. Yes. So um, anyway, so there's like, maybe there's that page, right? And then like at the end, if it's a, if it's a book with modern history in it, then there's like a chapter at the end about the Holocaust. So then it's like, Ooh, Jews are people who were murdered and their murders teach us something about, you know, the limits of civilization, but there's like nothing in between, right? There's nothing or after, right? And that's sort of like a kind of a stunning omission because when you look at this, you know, Jewish culture as it like weaves its way through Western history, it teaches you like a lot of things that like you don't want, it, it, it undermines a lot of like the rest of the things that are being taught in the textbook. Um, and what I mean by that is it's like, there's a lot of things that we learn about history that just aren't, aren't true. And yeah. And, and that's sort of like, no, I mean, like actually aren't true. And like they're proven wrong by the persistence of Jewish culture. Um, and I could go into those things if people are interested, but I don't know how much I can rant about this. But I think there's <laughs> a lot to be learned about the content of other people's cultures and like actual curiosity about human difference and cultural difference. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think there is. I'm going to throw the floor open to questions one more time. Um, one more time for you guys. Uh, raise your hands. Not all at once. Not all at once, everybody. Come on. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I think it's very fascinating. Uh, that's something that I think about all the time, uh, probably more than most people, uh, you know, which is that everybody is taught these very sanitized histories of everything. And then history ends sometime around 1954, right? And that's pretty much it. Who knows what happened after that, right? <laughs> Whereas like I'm sitting there reading the news every day going, how can we have an American company who facilitated a genocide three years ago and, you know, all they're worried about is, are they going to get a big fine from the SEC right now? <laughs> so I just feel like maybe there's a lack of things being learned. In fact, it's not maybe. I mean, yes. I mean, that's another thing is also like, I mean, yeah, when you've got the public education system for 30 years, like, you know. That's that's probably a problem. For, <laughs> and also, like, you know, when you tell all the students, like, the only thing that actually matters is, like, STEM and science and math. You can't then be surprised that, like, you have, like, 
a lot of people who don't have like great critical thinking skills. Well, I don't think that they have great science and math skills either. <laughs> sometimes yeah, we've that got, also be true. yeah, we've, we've got one person who a brave listener who'd like to ask you a question. Well, I'm very scary, so, right? I mean, brave, brave listener. Please tell us your name people. and where you are. Uh, hi. Hi. Hello. Hey. Uh, so I don't know why, but just listening to you talk made me think about Rachel Dolezal. Um, uh, I guess it was part of what you're talking about, how Jews have this identity of being like the uncool for, for forever and everything. I thought that was kind of funny. You know, like that that seems to fit the identity, but like I'm not taking a position defending Rachel Dolezal, but I just think about the idea that she was somebody who actually tried to literally transcend race with her own person. And I, I don't think she I mean, I, the question comes up, maybe that did she benefit from it? Probably because she did get jobs related to her identity as a black woman. But like she was really vilified at the time. And I think still so. And um I just think with fresh eyes on it after some time, it's like, it's just, it's interesting. So more, more so than it is angering. And I just don't know what, what thoughts do you have on that at this point? <laughs> sure. Well, so, I mean, I don't know how much I, I, I probably read the same news articles you did about that person. So I don't know that I have any special insight into uh, what motivated her or anything like that. Um, but one thing I will say is that like, you know, there is this strange thing with, um, when you talk about Jewish identity, where it doesn't fit into these categories, right? And I think that that's why, you know, you have like all these sort of like strained conversations now where it's like, well, are Jews white? Are Jews, you know, and it's sort of like, and, you know, you have those same conversations happening in different places in the world in different times based on whatever frame is important in those places. Um, and so, and that's something I find really interesting because, you know, with the example of Jewish identity, you really have something that like, you know, right now we're like in this American context where we really want to like draw lines on like, you know, people being identified by race. Um, and a lot of, there are a lot of people who don't fit into those categories. Um, probably more and more people who don't fit into those categories. And there are also a lot of categories that don't really map that well onto that frame, right? And so I think that that's sort of, to me, that's kind of interesting because, you know, if you could talk about if you, if you want to talk about identity from like a racial point of view, um, you know, where you're going to say like, this is something that you're born into. I think that there's like, there's a, a large spectrum of the way people, you know, identify with both, you know, wherever they're coming from, but also like what they choose to identify with. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, there's this idea that, that passing is something that people either do or don't do. But I think there's also something called passive passing. Um, where like, you know, you may, you know, have your Starbucks name that you use when you, uh, go to Starbucks. Like, I mean, I do that and my name's not even that unusual. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, there's sort of, I think that there are a lot of ways in which people present themselves one way or another in order to, in order to fit in. But your, your idea about, um, you know, someone who really is like doing a full-blown, you know, change of their identity really challenges us in that way. And you're right about that. Um, I'm reminded of something that I do write about in my book, which is um, Jews who have been in contexts where there isn't even necessarily like explicit persecution, but where there it's clear that Jewish identity is not welcome and where Jews have sort of been forced into situations where they have to self-erase. 
Um, and that's something that I write about where it does. And the, there's the reason I bring it up in this context with your question is because I give an example in my book, which is very physical, um, which is in, and I mean, and you got to remember Jewish culture is very, very old. So you go back thousands of years. So in the, in, there was a, we were coming up on the holiday of Hanukkah in a few weeks and that holiday celebrates uh, the a Jewish revolt against a, a Greek empire that took over ancient Judea. But when that Greek empire took over ancient Judea, I, I'm getting back to your point. But I know this sounds very far afield. Um, it's okay. It's, it's Hanukkah. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Well, I'm no, expecting it's miracle. That, that, that this Greek empire was like wanted, you know, everyone to sort of assimilate to their culture. And they later became oppressive about it and made restrictive laws. But at the beginning, it was sort of just like, well, we're setting up this culture in this country. And if you want to matter in this country, you have to participate. And the reason I, the physical example I give in my book is in ancient Greek culture, something that was really important was athletics. Um, it wasn't just like the way we think about sports. It was like part of the religion. It was part of public life. It was like anybody who mattered had to play in these Greek games, sure. which of course were always played in the nude. There were, and in this um, ancient, ancient Judea, they recruited teenage Jewish boys to participate in these games these boys had their circumcisions reversed so that they could play in these greek games oh wow yeah so as you can imagine ancient genital surgery of this type was like really not fun and potentially fatal but these these teenage boys like did not want to miss out and i think that that is sort of like this really tragic human story that you think about like you know, what we expect of people, how we want people to present. And so the Rachel Dolezal story is sort of interesting. She's in some, I mean, she's kind of doing the opposite of what a lot of people have, you know, minority people have done over many centuries of trying to blend into a majority culture. She's doing the opposite, which is why it's so striking. But I mean, you know, there's many ways over history that people in a minority have, you know, tried to fit in and in a lot of tragic ways. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dara, I mean, it's been a pleasure. I'm just going to tell everybody once again, the book is called People Love Dead Jews Report for, uh, Reports from a Haunted Present. And you'll be at the book fair, the Miami Book Fair, which you can find at Miami Book Fair on Twitter or www.miamibookfair.com with the, uh, ep I know your appearance is going to be on, uh, what is it? November 18th, Thursday, November 18th. I believe you. <laughs> 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 I don't want to go look on my calendar. <laughs> and uh, before we go, any uh, just uh, websites that you want to share with our listeners and your Twitter account, of course. I know that you're not on there as much as yeah, you should be. Yeah, I don't really spend too much time on social media. Yeah, but, um, but yeah, I do have a website which is uh, darahorn.com. Um, I you know I'm, I I do I do read the mail there myself. I don't like have some staff working for me or anything like everyone's like if Dara is really reading this I'm like yeah I'm really reading this um I do I do actually respond um and I um and as I mentioned I do also in addition to the book I have a podcast uh, adventures with dead Jews um which you can find wherever wherever you get your podcasts well Dara thank you so much for joining me tonight I really appreciate thank you it. have Thanks a great for having night. me take care thank you you too so everybody, that is it. That's the space. Thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. You guys have been a great audience. Posed some great questions. I'm uh, going to release a nice podcast with this as well, if you missed anything. And uh, you can go to Anchor. You can look for Only in Miami show at anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm. Look for Only in Miami show. I'm going to start putting stuff out there. And like I said, check out Miami Book Fair. They're pretty cool. And uh, I'll be back tomorrow night. I've got two more authors, including one that is going to explain why Florida is weird. Who doesn't want to hear about that? Have a great night, all right?